sticks, if you will. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one right down in front, been provided for you. And uh, you can use that if you like. If you need it, you can take it. That's our gift to you. Matthew chapter 26, I'm excited for Easter Sunday. I don't know if you are, but I am. I've been told already by somebody that they have a friend coming, and I'm looking forward to that. They're lost, need to be saved, and um, I'll be preaching on the love of God, the love of God that never fails. But I'm also, uh, first, I, I've got to admit, I've been looking forward to this service, and uh, so thankful, so thankful for all that Christ has done for us. If you look at Matthew chapter 26, I want to read several verses tonight. And uh, as we prepare to take the Lord's table, the Bible says now the first day of the feast, I'm sorry, verse 17. Did I say that? Matthew 26 and verse 17. Now, the first day of the feast of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying unto him, where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to such a man and say unto him, the master saith, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed him, and they made ready the Passover. Now when the even was come, he sat down with the twelve. And as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceeding sorrowful, and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? He said unto him, Thou hast said. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and brake it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup. And he gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is the blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung in him, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Heavenly Father, I come before you tonight on this anniversary, Lord, of your death. And God, we want to stop tonight everything that's gone through our brain today, through our heart, all that has been done by our hands and through our feet. And we want to recognize, Lord, all that has happened in order that we might be saved. And God, as we do so, I pray that you would help me to get out of your way, that you would fill me with your spirit, that you would overwhelm me with your love. I pray, Father, that you'd give us as your people understanding and Lord, I pray that our hearts tonight would be prepared to take the table. And as we do, that there would be nothing in our heart between our soul and our Savior. Or that our hearts, that our minds would be pure and clean. That you would have the preeminent spot that you deserve. You would have the love as of tonight that you are worthy of. That you would have all the praise, all the honor all the thanksgiving that we have that we could possibly give to you. We pray that you would use your word in our heart. We ask that your spirit would have complete liberty. We ask that you would use this, Lord, to prepare our hearts even for Sunday morning, that others might be saved. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For more than 2,000 years, followers of Jesus Christ have set together and rehearsed the events of the night Jesus took bread and broke it. 
in preparation for his death on the cross of Calvary. Honoring and remember the Lord's death is not and never has been a means of salvation. But it is meaningful for those of us who have been born again by the grace of God. The Lord's table is one of two ordinances or practices given to the followers of Christ as a reminder of his death. In the book of Acts, whenever the believers sat down for a common meal together, it was normal at the end of the supper, like the one Jesus sat at here in Matthew 26, it was normal at the end of the supper by breaking bread and then drinking the blood of the grape to do so in remembrance of his death. That was an occurrence that happened whenever they shared a meal. Now, you got to remember tonight what we read was a written account of it, and they had nothing but eyewitnesses of it. You'll remember in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people got saved, then daily they met. Daily they shared meals. Daily they broke bread together. That's the reference to the Lord's table. And that means that those people that were sitting at this table were describing the table. It was a first-person testimonial of that night. For 2,000 years, believers have been doing the same thing. For 2,000 years, we've rehearsed and remembered what Jesus did for us on the cross of Calvary. Think of it this way. For the first century believers, there was virtually no time when they were not thinking about the death of Jesus Christ. For the who knows how long, first few weeks, maybe months, people had not gone home, back from Jerusalem, back from the Passover, back from the celebration of Christ, back from the 50 days after when Pentecost had fallen. And every day they were reminded, every day they were reminded of what Jesus did for them by people who were there, by people who weren't there. They were at the supper, but they weren't at the cross. People who couldn't testify other than John and Mother Mary, who what happened to Jesus, but they could testify that this is what he was doing and this is what he meant by it. Sadly, as the gospel spread and the churches were planted, there came a time when people were not taking the Lord's table seriously any longer. They weren't taking it reverently. It wasn't important. In fact, the church at Corinth was guilty of this very thing. And the letter sent by God through the hands of the Apostle Paul suggests that much of the Christian struggles in that church and in their lives are directly related to the remembrance of the cost of Calvary. When people don't concentrate and think about Jesus' death on the cross and what it meant and what it does mean, they become selfish. They become filled with pride. They have other agenda. They have, they start clicks. And the Bible tells us in the letter to the church at Corinth that they were coming in and going out and taking the Lord's table whenever they wanted to because they didn't want to take it with anybody else. They had deemed at that point some people not worthy to take it with. And it was just, Paul says, as if it was another meal. And he says, look, you got homes for that. You can just eat your dinner at home. But this is the Lord's table. This is not a common meal this is something to stop all meals, to remind you of what Jesus did. I was thinking about that over and over and over and over this week, and I thought about it as we prepare to take the Lord's table tonight. I want you to consider three brief details from the cross, in remembrance of the cross. I think you have your outlines, hopefully you do. I want you to see, first of all, the truth about the cross. Does everybody have an outline? If you don't have one, raise your hand real quick. 
All right, good. The truth about the cross. I want you to think about this. And, and, and I have to believe in my mind that as the first disciples were made by the apostles of Jesus Christ, as the book of Acts is the Acts of the Apostles, as they were teaching them, they were teaching them about the cross and they were teaching them everything they could possibly relate and, and all that Jesus had taught them and everything that they were experiencing even. even and, and the truth about the cross is threefold. First of all, we need to understand that it was absolutely necessary. The cross was necessary. Romans 3 and verse 24 says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, God to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him, which believeth in Jesus friend. The Bible tells us that if I'm ever going to have a chance at forgiveness, if I'm ever going to get saved, my life has to be justified. My sin has to be paid for. The wages of sin is death. So it was necessary for God to sacrifice a lamb. And Jesus was that lamb. The Bible says that his righteousness should be declared. That he might be just. That he would be the one that stands before God and says, listen, it's not them, it's me. It was necessary. Secondly, it was substitutionary. It was substitutionary. The Bible says, for he hath made him, that is Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You see, there's a lot of people that think the law was necessary and that it was the law. And I don't need a substitute because I can live the law. Friend, if that were true, then Jesus didn't have to die. The fact is, the Bible says, for what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son, notice this, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condensed him in the flesh. Jesus, God in the flesh, had to be made sin for us. He died, could you remember it this way, for you. He took your lie. He took your bitterness. He took your anger. He took your adultery. He took your thievery. He took it all on your behalf. Any sin you've ever committed, any sin that you could ever commit, Jesus had to die for. It was necessary. It was substitutionary. The, the theological term is vicarious. The vicarious death of Jesus Christ. He took you off the cross and Jesus said, I'll die for him. I'll take their place. I'll be the substitute. Thirdly, I want you to know the other truth about the cross is it's discretionary. Yes, it was necessary and Jesus died in our place. But do you understand that as God in the flesh, he could have done anything but die for you? Do you understand that Jesus' life was not taken? It was given for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The Bible tells us, therefore, doth my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. Listen, no man taketh it from me. Jesus words, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my father. See that phrase? I have the power to lay it down. And I have the power to take it in. By, by the way, he did take it again, didn't he? 
That's what we're celebrating on Sunday. But tonight we have to find the place where it says, listen, we got to stop. And yes, before we celebrate the resurrection, we've got to remember the cross. We've got to think about the truth. Jesus died for me. Why? Because if I was ever going to have fellowship with God, it was only going to be because of his death. The Bible specifically says it required his blood. The truth about the cross. Secondly, I want you to notice the tools of the cross. The tools of the cross. The cross is a cruel thing. The Bible prophesies it in different places as the tree. Cursed is the man that hangeth on a tree. But that's interesting when you think about the cross in a biblical sense. And that's, of course, what our goal is always here. When you think of the cross, I want you to understand letter A, it was predestined by a sovereign God. What do I mean by that? Well, Ephesians 1, 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. First Peter chapter 1, notice this, But with the precious blood of Christ, as the Lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who did who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory. Do you understand that before the foundation of the world, Jesus Christ was already foreordained to die on the cross. God already had the plan in place before we were ever created you say well wait a minute why did that happen because god never goes without a plan it's a fool that creates something without a plan god not only had the plan for creation he had the plan for redemption in the in the hopes that man would never have to use it but in case they did decide that they wanted to be god that they wanted to go their own way god and his sovereignty already had a plan in place by the way thank god for that Praise the Lord that he had a plan in place that he didn't have to go. Oh, what do I do now? Adam and Eve's messed up. What do I do now? Well, how, how am I going to get a savior? How am I going to have fellowship with the creation? I can't dwell down the way. I don't know what to do. He didn't have to consult with himself. He already had the plan in place. Do you understand that? Jesus Christ was predestined to die on a cross and hang on a tree and become a curse for all of us. He was predestined by a sovereign God, but secondly, he was performed by sinful men. You know that God is the creator, uses even evil for good. We love to quote the verse, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. All things, good, bad, and indifferent, work together for good. The worst evil that ever happened and the most injustice that ever took place in our, in our, on this earth happened to Jesus Christ. The worst evil, the worst bad that could ever happen. But it produced the greatest good. How did it happen? God used wicked people to fulfill his will. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that what he did with Pharaoh? Isn't that what he did with Nebuchadnezzar? Isn't that what he, I mean, we could go through the Bible. The Bible says in Luke 24, 7, Jesus 
saying, the Son of Man must be delivered, listen, into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And the third day rise again. Jesus knew it. He knew their faces before he walked into their hands. But there was more, of course, to the crucifixion of Christ than the cross. <laughs> to the Romans, it was a process of wicked torture that began with what they call a Roman flagrum. As many as 13 strands of leather interwoven with pieces of metal at various lengths, of course, were used as a whip. Sometimes the Roman scourge contained a hook at the end and was given the terrifying name Scorpion. The criminal was made to stoop and hunch over. And that would make deeper lashes from the shoulders all the way to the waist. Now, according to Jewish law, the discipline of the synagogue, the number of stripes was 40 less one or 39. However, and by the way, the rabbis said that there are 168 actions that a person could commit to be punished by scourging before the judges. But the Roman scourging, they had no limit to the number of stripes. The scourging among the Romans was a more severe form because of that. Deep lacerations, torn flesh, exposed muscles, and excessive bleeding would leave the criminal half dead. In many cases, they would die before they ever got to the cross. Death was often the result of this cruel form of punishment, though it was necessary to keep the criminal alive to be brought to public subjugation on the cross. They did everything that they could, not only just to torture and maim, but then to keep them alive so that they would hang in shame. In Jesus' case, following the Roman scourge, soldiers subjected him to the shame of a crown of thorns and a purple robe as they mocked him as the king of the Jews before turning him back over to Pilate for final sentencing and, of course, death by crucifixion. God predicted that. God predicted in the book of Isaiah that his visage, his appearance, would be so marred and destroyed that you wouldn't even be able to tell who he was. Suspended between heaven and earth, Jesus hung for hours, the Bible says, while people jeered at him. While God turned his back on him, and then life left his body. And as if it meant nothing to them at the church of Corinth, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, For as oft as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. The Lord's death. He didn't die until he cried out, it is finished, the Bible says, and he gave up the ghost. But he began to die the moment the blood started flowing down his body. They tell me that these Roman soldiers were professionals at doing this. They took very much pride in what they did. They were called licturns, and they would take turns, one on each side of the victim, lashing and lashing and lashing commenting on what they were doing the whole time while blood flowed. That's the beginning of death. And then it wasn't for hours later that Jesus did finally die. Why did he do it? Well, the truth is it was necessary. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. 
The truth is it was discretion. Uh, it was substitutionary. He did it so that you wouldn't have to suffer. He could have called 10,000 angels and said, stop, let everybody suffer for their own sin. But he didn't. He said, no, I'm going to take their place. He became our shame. His violent ripping of flesh became our peace, according to Isaiah. And he did it just because he loved you. Completely discretionary, I'm going to lay my life down. The Bible says like a lamb led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. Now let's just think thirdly about the teaching from the cross for a minute. What does all that teach us? Now let's go back. Let's, let's become Acts chapter 2 verse 41 disciples. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. You just got saved. You're going to sit down with Peter or John. And they're going to tell you, they're going to teach you all things whatsoever the Lord has commanded you. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. You just got saved. They're telling you about the man, Jesus Christ, in further detail. They're telling you what he did and why he did it. They're telling him how amazing his life was and how tragic his death was and how victorious his resurrection was. What do you learn from all that? How does that make you feel at that moment? Just a few weeks prior to that, you find out that this man actually did there's rumors and wow, he's appeared to 500 people at once. Now you're a disciple learning about it. 2,000 years later, we're learning the same things. Same thought process. If you're told someone died for you and it was necessary for you to be saved and you trusted in that individual because he's alive and not dead, what can we learn? Let me give you just a few suggestions. First of all, we learn from the cross to never question God's love. We, we can never look at Jesus Christ's death and all that he went through and say at the throne of God, Lord, I would just never knew whether you love me or not. You, 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 you will not be able to do that. If you can't do it at the bar of God, why do we do it in our day, in our daily life? Well, I don't feel loved. Really? Because if I look at the cross, all I see is love. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him, here in his love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us and his love is perfected in us. It's all about love. I'm going to spend probably 35 minutes on Sunday talking about the unfailing love of God. And the necessity of it and the power of it. And so if I'm being discipled, all I can think about as I weep and as I think to myself, I deserve to die for my sin is, man, I can't believe that he loved me that much. That's what we're taught. 
whenever I take the, the, the bread and whenever I take the juice, I've got to think, man, I can never, ever, ever question God's love for me, for God. The little word is so love the world. That's a lot of love. I think another thing that we're taught from the cross is that we can never question, though we can never question God's love for us, we can never question God's hatred for sin. God said, look, I I love you so much. And I love you so much and I'm going to die for you because I hate sin. And I hate what it does to you. And if you ever question how awful sin really is, just look at the cross. Because everything that Jesus went through is told in James, lust, when it is conceived, bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. You could argue it this way, nothing good ever comes from sin. Nothing good ever has. Nothing good ever will. God, keep us from sin. The Bible says that he's angry with the wicked every day. His heart and his his blessing is toward the upright, but with the wicked he is angry every day. The sinner, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And all the nations that forget God, all of them will be turned into death. Why? Because God hates sin. But what sin? Anything that's in opposition to God? Anything that goes contrary to the word of God, that is sin. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. It's all there. There's a reason it's called transgression and iniquity and sin. It's three different forms of God's hatred for sin and our ability to do whatever we want. God covers it all. And all of that was put on Jesus. Why? Because God hates it. And he wanted to put it out of our life. For good. When you look at the cross, you can never question God's love for you. Don't ever let Satan tell you in your mind, God doesn't love you. If he loved you, this wouldn't be happening. Don't, don't ever take advice from a loser. Satan's already lost. And he knows it. Oh, for three days, he thought he had the victory. For three days, he thought, man, we finally dealt the blow. It's over. We don't have to worry about Jesus. Now we can go about it. But three days later, that party ended, friend. And sin was taken care of. Jesus Christ walked out of the grave with the keys of death and hell. Why? Because he hated sin in your life and mine. I can't ever question God's love. I certainly can't question God's hatred for sin. It cost the son of his, the death of his, uh, uh, the life of his only son. Thirdly, and I think this is where much of what we find in the New Testament concerning the Lord's table is really overwhelming to the people in Acts chapter 2. Thirdly, another lesson that we learn from the cross is that forgiveness wasn't cheap. Never let someone tell you, oh, you Baptists, you just think salvation's just so easy. No, friend. Anything that I described about Jesus' death seem easy to you? No. He did all that so he could offer it. High price was paid. Forgiveness wasn't cheap. I, I don't know who all the... I can't wait to get to heaven to see the great cloud of witnesses that's been encompassing us all our entire lives. I can't wait. I can't wait to meet the first disciples that were made after the apostles. 
to find out what kind of people got saved. Find out what, what skeletons were in their closet until Jesus cleaned the house. To see what kind of people we thought we could not relate to. And then standing there next to them singing praises to God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And saying, hey, hey, Steve, tell me about your life. I'll tell you about what a life God saved me from. And I'll say, wow. And somebody else, and I'll go, hey, I have that in common. Hey, I have that in common. The fact is, friend, we all have something in common. It's called sin. Now that we're saved, we have something in common. It's called grace. Now we can say, man, God, it sure wasn't easy. Forgiveness wasn't cheap. What would that cause you to do? Let me give you the third thing, or the fourth thing. Another lesson. Another lesson that we get taught from the cross is that we owe Jesus Christ everything. Would you turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5? I love the book of Revelation. Let's start up a few verses. Let's go to verse 9. <laughs> Revelation chapter 5, and look at verse 9. I love these words. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nations, look up here. Don't ever let somebody tell you that all lives don't matter. All lives do matter to God. That's biblical. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. God is not a respecter of persons. All people are sinners. So Jesus died to be all people savior. Somebody say amen right there. Look at verse 10. And has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing in every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the lamb forever and ever. I don't know what that translates to you, but to me, it tells me that Jesus Christ is is worthy of all that I have. It's almost like he ran out of words to say that everything that needs to be heaped upon the Lord. Now, all that is to say this. Can you imagine what it must have been like in the first few hundred years of the church? As they sat down for a meal and then the Lord's table. The first disciples that were made in Acts chapter 2, some 3,000 of them. I wonder how sobered they were. To hear the details surrounding the Lord's death. Especially those that had come from some distance. 
The Bible tells us exactly what happened. Did you know that? You can go home and study it tonight. The Bible says that daily they met and in prayer and breaking to brother, breaking bread together and fellowship. The next verse says, fear came upon every soul. You mean just from taking the Lord's table? Yeah. You know, they tell me in Scripture that fear is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God. Fear came upon every soul. That is, there was an amazement. The word invokes a reverence. And that reverence and awe entered their soul. The very seat of who they are. This would be the custom for the Lord's table for centuries. Can I say it this way? That's what's supposed to happen when you talk about the death of Christ. Has fear come into your soul? When I send out an email, when you come and sit and you prepare to take the Lord's table and you think about the Lord's sacrifice, does it humble you that he died for you? I'm not trying to be mystical, and you understand this if you're saved. Does your soul feel reverent to God? If it doesn't, could you ask yourself why? Because it was necessary for him to die. And he died for you. And he did it voluntarily. Isn't that humbling? I've been given a lot of things in my life and every single time somebody gives me something of any value, it's humbling. But there's only one person that ever died for me. And I dare say I've taken many of the Lord's table sadly and not been reverent in my soul. The Bible says the fear came upon every soul. Can you imagine during those early years People were tortured and killed for being a Christian. You understand that. They were separated from their families. They lost their jobs. Sitting around in a circle as the bread was broken in remembrance of the Lord's broken body. Can you imagine handing that loaf to your friend or family member whose arm or hand or leg was gnarled because it was broken, but it was never set, all because they were a believer. Can you think about that just for a minute? So, so this is the custom. That's what they did. If they shared a common meal at the end, they always remembered the Lord's table. They always remembered his death. And they always showed it until he came. That was the practice. But in those days, when Paul himself wreaked havoc on the church, they didn't care about the church. And yet the church, the Bible says, went everywhere preaching the gospel. For that, they lost their life. Every apostle that you read in the Bible, every disciple died Because they preached the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Because they baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. And for centuries, as people were persecuted, they broke the loaf and handed it to somebody. Just think about that. Handing it to a family member who was handing it off to a friend who has no more family members. Because people who bore in their body the marks of the Lord Jesus as the Apostle Paul 
those tables would have been very hollow, don't you think? What we're doing here is a crime. What we're doing here is illegal. But what we're doing here is biblical. And that charged them to go right back out and do it again and again and again. Why? Because they would rather obey God than man. Because reverence came into their soul and an awe of the God that saved them. And they said, anybody that's willing to do that for me, I own everything. That's truly the power of remembering the cross. <laughs> when you remember the Lord's death, what comes to your mind about your life in regards of the Savior? When you look at Calvary and you see Jesus hanging there marred beyond human comprehension. What does your life look like? Because that was your life. And he took it. When I survey... The wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but loss. And I pour contempt on my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See? See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life. And my all. Every time we take the Lord's death or take the Lord's table, it shows that. That's what we learn when we stop to remember the cross. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me for a time of prayer? God in heaven, we bow before you now Lord truly humbled by your sacrifice so grateful so so grateful for your love thank you for dying for us thank you Lord for for your forbearance and your long suffering with us Thank you for giving us a means to remember. Forgive us for not remembering. Forgive us for not, for not remembering often enough. Lord, tonight, we're going to take this bread and drink this cup together. We're going to stand with a litany of believers who for two millennia have sat together and rehearsed the broken bread and the blood of the grape in remembrance of Calvary. Now, Lord, in 
your letter to the church that needed to hear this. It required before taking that every man and woman examine themselves. Looking for those things that were displeasing to you, the sin. Words said. Intents of the heart, the motives. Actions done. Those things that keep us from close fellowship with you. God, I can't help but think that when we look at Calvary, those things immediately, immediately can be washed away. That's what the blood's for. Lord, tonight I I pray that we as Christians would not just look within, but look without in our life. Lord, that we would be transparent with you and maybe even ourselves for the first time in a long time and confess, forsake, and find the mercy of God. Your, your wonderful promise to save us includes the promise that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we walk in the light as you are in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all our sin. God, you make it clear in 1 John 2 that, that we ought not sin. But if we do, we have an advocate. And we can go right back and ask for forgiveness. Thank you for that. God, thank you for the price you paid for our, for our forgiveness. Thank you for your shed blood and your broken body. Thank you that you made it possible for sinners to be saved. God, tonight as believers, we offer ourselves to you. We ask that you would do a searching and a purging tonight. Help us to prepare now in Jesus' name. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I'm going to ask Jenna just to play just for a minute. And I want to ask you if you just pray to the Lord. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Would you just spend time tonight making sure that you're ready to take the Lord's table? That there will be nothing to keep you from taking the Lord's table?